Hi, and welcome to SI Voices, the podcast series from Seroptimist International, a global organization that takes action at grassroots level working with communities and advocates at international level to fight inequality and improve the lives of women and girls. Right here, we will address many of the barriers to equality and talk to Seroptimist, partner NGOs and organizations, women's rights activists, leaders, and policymakers. SI Voices is a platform for women's voices to be heard. Hello, I'm Hannah, and I will be your host for the day. Today, we will be looking at the priority theme of this year's Commission on the Status of Women, or CSW for short, which is an annual event that's held to promote the women, women's rights and gender equality. This year's theme looked at the empowerment of women and girls in the context of climate change, environmental and disaster risk reduction policies and programmes. Joining me is Katie Tobin, Senior Programme Manager at the Women's Environment and Development Organisation based in New York. Katie, I'm thrilled to welcome you to SI Voices. Your professional experience speaks of your dedication to gender and climate justice. Please tell our listeners a bit about yourself. I'm curious to know how you started out in your career. And what keeps you driving forward? Thanks so much, Hannah, for having me. I'm, I'm really pleased to be joining you for this conversation today. So I've been lucky enough to be part of the feminist movement around the United Nations uh, since about 10 years ago. I started out working at the UN itself at a really small office that um, was helping to advocate for civil society engagement in UN processes. And there I focused on, on human rights, especially gender equality. And I got to actually go to Rio plus 20 to the, the, you know, the earth conference um, in 2012 in Rio. So I've, you know, over my career, I've really been lucky to learn from the sustainable development process at the UN and from all of the amazing activists all over the world uh, who are part of it and who are shaping it. So I joined We Do just this past November, and it's been a really exciting kind of return to that really um, active and dynamic feminist space around the UN, um, particularly led by and learning from the wisdom and, and experience and work of, of feminists in the global South in particular. I can certainly relate to the drive that comes from being surrounded by a team of inspirational activists and experts in the field. In fact, I was really conscious of that this CSW as it provided an opportunity, albeit for many a virtual opportunity, to connect with activists from such a wide variety of backgrounds. You've mentioned your experience in policy initiatives. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what makes a good policy in respect to this year's priority theme. So, you know, for us, we see it as, as really important and, all, and also a really basic kind of principle of what makes a good policy on, on climate, on environment, or on disaster risk reduction is that it has to be both grounded in local context, local realities, local expertise, as well as cognizant and acknowledging the historical and structural causes of climate and environmental destruction. So it has to foreground the leadership and analysis of those most affected so especially women and gender diverse people, especially indigenous people, so important when it comes to, to biodiversity, to guardianship of, of seeds and land and resources and historical knowledge. 
and all of that. And then we talk a lot about gender transformative policy. So that's kind of jargony. But what we mean by that is that policies have to go beyond a kind of recognition of gender. So a lot of climate and environment policies are completely gender blind, which can even, you know, actively be harmful as they inadvertently uphold gender dynamics of power and access to resources and all of that. So we're saying not only do we have to recognize gender dynamics, we have to actively seek to engage with gender dimensions of power and shift them while also taking the structural root causes approach. So that's what we see as kind of from our feminist structural analysis perspective, what makes a good policy um, when it comes to environment, climate, disaster risk reduction. It's really to be guided by that, that principle. Yeah, yeah, you're so right. I think it's so vital that change is directed by those most affected by it. And I think that's really at the heart of a lot of our Theroptimist projects. Um, through our club programmes and President's Appeals, SI now has a 100-year history of empowering women and girls through education and training programmes, enabling participants to take up positions of leadership within their communities and beyond. So civil society organisations have been working to reduce climate change and environmental threats for decades and have repeatedly proven that gender transformative approaches are most effective. As WIDO's senior programme manager, is there a particular WIDO programme that springs to mind when you think of empowering women and girls in the context of this year's priority theme? So really everything that we do at WIDO is grounded in that intersection or nexus between gender justice and climate and environment justice. That's why WIDO was founded in the early 90s and that guides everything that we do. Um, but maybe I'll take the opportunity to tell you about one of the programs that, that I'm coordinating, and it's a fairly new program. Um, it's called the Feminist Action Nexus for Economic and Climate Justice. And it's a new initiative that came out of the Generation Equality Forum last year. And we do is co-convening it along with FEMNET, the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance, and the Women's Working Group on Financing for Development. So it's a really exciting opportunity to really weave together economic justice analysis. So looking at structural issues of debt, of trade, of taxation, of global economic governance with the climate justice perspective. So a lot of times when we talk about climate finance, for example, it doesn't make sense to separate it from the realities of other financial flows like official development assistance that were pushing for in recognition of uh, industrialized countries roots to development and the obligations that they bear for the rest of the world. And it also makes sense to look at, you know, what are the resources available for governments to be taking climate action, especially in a gender transformative way? Um, you know, we really have to look at this overarching context, especially of, for example, um, governments' obligations to service their sovereign debt, which leaves very little money left over for either climate action or the investments in public services, for example, that go a long way towards relieving women's disproportionate share of care work, et cetera. So we're excited about this project because it really is gonna be linking in with all of the activism and work that the four networks or the three networks and we do are already doing all over the world and really provide an opportunity to advance some of the feminist structural analysis that I was talking about a minute ago. Um, and I think, 
that's what sets it up for success, that it is this kind of, it's organized according to these kind of collective feminist principles, um, building from the coalitions that were, that we're working from and really tapping into the recognition that we saw at CSW this year, that all of these movements are connected in their root causes and then really need to be connected in, in our response and in the advocacy that we're doing. Wow, that sounds so exciting. What a brilliant program. Yeah, I think it's increasingly clear, like you say, that um, we can't afford to be working in silos. We need to be working in collectives and partnerships and inclusivity is key here as well. So what role do you see um, civil society organisations such as WIDO and Soroptimist International as having and shaping policies and programmes? So it's really important that civil society is present in multilateral spaces, especially the United Nations. And the UN itself has always acknowledged that, that importance, including, you know, in the UN Charter, its very first words are, we the peoples. And then they've backed that up with, you know, official resolutions and arrangements that enable us to officially participate. So as civil society, we're fundamental in, in bringing the voices and perspectives of, of real people to multilateral spaces and, and for reminding governments of the very real stakes of the outcomes that they negotiate, you know, making sure that yeah. they don't stay in their UN bubble. Um, but I think as, you know, civil society representatives at the UN in particular, we also have a responsibility. You know, we're still representatives of the global elite being able to have U.S. visas or be U.S. citizens, being able to afford, uh, you know, either being in New York full time or coming for important UN meetings, and then being able to follow the negotiations um, in English, especially, um, as well as the other five UN languages. So we have to be careful also as civil society to not to assume that we speak for or represent all women or, or all people, um, and really to use the privilege that we have in being here um, to, to articulate and to stand in solidarity with the struggles for rights and autonomy of all kinds all over the world. So I think it's really important that we continue to kind of push back against the closing of civil society space at the UN, which we've seen yeah. magnified with, with COVID-19, yeah. you know, and with the inequalities in vaccine access, which are results of deliberate decisions on the part of, um, wealthy governments and wealthy corporations. So, you know, we need to, to continuously argue for expanded participation and, and not in words only, including travel funding, including assistance with U.S. visas, including ending global vaccine apartheid. And then in the meantime, we have to use the space we do have to make the strongest possible arguments on the content and not just on kind of we're so important, we need to be here, but really showing why and showing what we bring Yeah. in terms of yeah our communications, our engagement with governments. Um, to make it clear that, you know, we're watching, we're watching what they're doing, we're holding them to account for their commitments. And at the same time, you know, using outside this sort of inside outside dynamic, making sure we're not relying too much on the inside, but also aligning ourselves with social movements, with protests, which with, with other ways that people are influencing their governments all over the world to create real change. Absolutely. Yeah. So this year, um, we've had the agreed conclusions from CSW. And uh, I know that states have, at the UN have discussed the environment for decades. Um, and a lack of political will has often been cited as a, cited as a reason for an action. Um, what actions were you looking to see from member states of CSW? Well, we had a really uh, specific and um, kind of long list 
given that this is the first year that that CSW was really taking on the environment and climate agenda in an explicit way. I mean, it had mm. addressed it before, but that kind of significance of what they call the priority theme, meaning that this was the central topic, um, meant that it was a really important moment to bring together the environmental um, and gender equality movements around some key asks. So we did publish um, with a couple other organizations a version of, of priorities that were kind of collectively advocated and, and came together through the Women's Rights Caucus, of which Sir Optimist is also a part. And they focused on, um, on structural macroeconomic issues like debt, like I was saying before, on gender-just climate finance, on uh, sexual and reproductive health and rights from a climate justice perspective, so really making those connections. Um, uh, getting into some kind of specific climate stuff on rejecting false solutions. So what we mean by that is really calling for um, a transforming of our global reliance um, on fossil fuels and an end to not just fossil fuel subsidies and, and relying not only, you know, instead of this kind of reliance on um, what they call net zero, which is we'll continue to emit carbon as long as we plant enough trees to quote unquote offset it. What we're really calling for is, no, we have to stop. We have to keep it in the ground. We have to really transition in a just and equitable way away from fossil fuels towards renewable energies. Um, and, you know, at the same time, we were making a broader point that these issues can't be separated from gender equality. If we look at loss and damage, which is the technical term for what happens when climate and environmental destruction uh, has already been creating both economic and non-economic impacts. So for example, when a village is destroyed after a cyclone and the cyclone happened because of increased global warming, um, that the there needs to be recognition of that loss and damage beyond a community's ability to adapt. So traditionally in climate change negotiations, we talk about mitigation. In other words, you know, cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions and stopping potential future worsening of climate change and then adaptation, which is adjusting to the way that things are now. But loss and damage takes that a step further and says, if you look at the indigenous communities, the frontline communities, especially in small island developing states, where you know they're already seeing sea level rise to the extent that it's creating a need for for climate migration or even climate refugees that these are gender equality issues because we know that women girls and gender diverse people are affected disproportionately and in different ways than our men yeah um, so really trying to introduce those ideas and and bring them into the csw space was a lot of what we were trying to do this year absolutely and and what are your thoughts of the outcomes did they go far enough and um, what what are you doing? And what would you recommend that Sir Optimus do to keep pushing for change? Well, you know, uh, as as tireless feminist activists, we would never say they go <laughs> far enough. Um, and you know, I think on on some of the issues, we were more reassured than others. I think on the the connections between debt and taxation and climate action, the agreed conclusions. So the outcome of CSW is entirely silent. So for us, we really see that as a, a clarion call for what we, meaning we do, meaning Sir Optimist, meaning the broader feminist movement really needs to be 
talking and learning and building across our movement. So we should all be talking about debt. We should all be talking about climate change. We should all be talking about loss and damage. And that means educating ourselves and, and learning from our, our colleagues all over the world and really taking on an interconnected agenda because some of what's in the agreed conclusions is a decent start. I mean, there's a mm. mention of sexual and human rights, sorry, sexual and reproductive rights. And um, in the context of climate, environment and disasters, so that's a new framing, we can build on that. Um, there's some context around climate finance, repeating kind of the promises from the Paris Agreement. You know, we would have liked to have gone beyond that, but at least it's in there. Yeah. Um, and there is a paragraph on, you know, needing to get financing, to make financing accessible to women's organizations, youth-led organizations, girls-led organizations, indigenous groups, local communities. Like those are the kinds of arguments we also make as the feminist movement. So we were really happy that they're reflected there. Although, yeah. of course, it doesn't go far enough, but it's something to build on. Yeah, definitely. And I think as individuals as well, we can, we can get behind social media movements. We can be allies for those who have left the platform. We can educate us, keep educating ourselves on key issues and engage, engage with the leaders beyond CSW um, and endorse change where it's needed. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, it was a really important step in the global calendar, albeit perhaps a very niche step for those of us following the UN, but we can bring this discussion into the UNFCCC, into the really important COP coming up at the end of the year yeah. in Egypt. We can, you know, yeah, bring it into what our, our movements are doing so that together we are advocating for a collective vision that really connects climate justice to economic justice, to social justice, to racial justice, to gender equality, to all of the things that we're fighting for and really understand how these are all connected. Wow, what a call to action. Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Hannah. It's been really great to be with you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to SI Voices. Follow us on social media, register for our webinars, and sign up for our Global Voice newsletter for the latest stories and advocacy news. Join us next time on SI Voices.